0: Hey, I'm Tracy Manuknuku, the founder of Sexy Ageing, a suite of online resources to support women through midlife, including the menopause transition. And I'm your host for the Sexy Ageing podcast, where I have the honour of speaking to incredible humans and experts in the field of midlife health, longevity, mindfulness, business, all the things really, with a healthy dose of menopause facts. There's no BS here. If you're interested in checking out my other services, which include a menopause management online course, workshops, coach calls, my book, and blog posts, then go to www.sexyaging.com. The podcast is also hosted there. Let's go. Introducing my guest for this podcast episode, Lisa Walker. Lisa is a Be Pure leading health specialist and clinical manager. She's worked in the health and fitness industry for the past eight years, and Lisa has developed a deep love for the interconnection between the body, mind, and soul. She's got a strong curiosity to the why behind our health concerns. Lisa has a keen interest in the interwoven physiological and psychological components of well-being that are unique to each individual. Lisa specializes in hormonal well-being, mental health, fatigue, gut health, and woman's health. I absolutely loved catching up with Lisa as we talked about nutrition specific to the menopause transition. So it's my pleasure today to introduce Lisa Walker, the clinical manager and lead researcher for B Pure Wellness to the Sexy Aging Podcast. Yay! that's us lisa we are and we're aging um so it's super nice to have you i have been personally researching a credible supplementation brand for my own personal nutrition some of the previous podcast episodes i've been able to um talk about gut health um, nutrition during menopause which is kind of a big topic as well because it is a really interesting time of our lives. And sometimes the things you used to be able to eat, you can't eat. And, you know, a lot of that kind of content we're, we're covering here on the podcast. But um, what's really interesting is that you are also talking about um, menopause. And mm-hmm. what's super cool is B pure have put out a menopause pack, To support Mm -hmm. women during this stage of life and that just got me like oh hey this is awesome so being based back in New Zealand it is difficult has been difficult for me to find something good to support my nutrition so I'm excited that we can connect
1: me too thank you so much for having me it's a real pleasure
0: cool I want to know more about you Lisa so how did you get into what you're in what you're involved in now which is mostly sort of on the nutrition side isn't it
1: yeah so probably First part to kick off with is who I work for. Yeah. So Be Pure, um, we are a wellness company and our goal with everything that we do is to transform lives to really help people have the energy, the vitality and the health that they need to live their best life, whatever that looks like for them. So within our products and services, we offer a range of things, everything from one-on-one clinical support, where you can come and do a deep dive in your health and really work on a serious health concern. Or you can do one of our online programs or do what you're doing and taking some of our high-end vitamin and mineral supplements uh, or our sort of solution-based herbal supplements where we really try and create solutions with people that really work. So we utilize the science, we use high bioavailable ingredients um, to make sure that what you're getting is really what you need and it's going to make a difference so that, like I said, it transforms your life and you can do what you want to do in your day. My key role as clinical manager and the researcher is essentially to be <laughs> these company's internal health Google. Um, <laughs> so I am, I'm the nerd that reads all the papers. Um, I get to geek out on health information all day, every day. I still work with clients in clinical practice as well. And then I spend a large chunk of my time doing all of our research and formulation and then education. So yeah. I'm always keen to hand out info to people and teach them because I really believe in self-health ownership. And people being empowered with the tools, the knowledge, and the skills that they need to live their best way. So that's sort of who I am and what I do.
0: That's awesome. Can you go back a little bit further? Like, you know, were you always interested in health and nutrition and movement? And Because I, I know you're a dancer. Yes, <laughs> yes. I do interview quite a few dancers. It's like we've all got this kind of groovy background that sort of pervades into our social media occasionally. So <laughs> tell us For about sure. that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my journey with um, exercise started as a little kid. My mum put me in dance classes because I literally was spinning on her carpet and putting holes in her carpet because I was spinning so much. And she was like, this kid needs movement and music. Let's try jazz and see where that goes. I became obsessed with it and ended up dancing almost twenty-four-seven every moment of every day that I could possibly do. Mm. My fascination with health, though, started at about age 12 when I became really unwell. I developed anorexia nervosa. Um, I spent five years living in a hospital, um, very frail, wheelchair-bound parts of it, unable to eat, petrified, mentally very distraught, and came out of it like, wow, that was an experience, and with every challenge you're faced with in life, you grow, and you learn so much, which inspired me to want to give back to people, because I realized that without people like me being in the industry, I wouldn't have been alive, i had been a box.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So Absolutely. it was... Um, yeah it was an inspiration for me to um, try and find ways to a safeguard myself from going backwards and b help others. So I actually started with um, working for Les Mills as a personal trainer. I actually oh. started there teaching um, classes and helping yeah. clients with their goals. I really enjoyed it, but the selfish goal behind that was being able to move again, without worrying about calories and counting and being obsessed with movement. It was refining really the joy and movement again. And that is always my goal now with my movement is to make sure it's fun. Hence why if you look at my Instagram, it's cartwheels and handstands and <laughs> upside down things because that's the stuff that I'm enjoying at the moment. I'm that weird human in the gym doing the odd thing over in the corner that you look at like, what? Huh? What's she doing? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy she's, it. Yeah.
0: She's a freak.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And i have happy to own that. That's good. That's me. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love it. Hey, we just literally have the same background. So, you know, I I was dancing from four. I remember my mum had to, um, for the exams, I mean, we did exams at the age of four and five. I was doing tap and she had to put um, a little dab of nail polish on my right shoe. So Mm -hmm. I would know that that was my right foot. And that's the one we start with. Yeah, because I'd look down, I'd see the little pink nail polish and go, okay, I've got to start with that foot. Because, you know, when you're that young. You dance, mum yeah yeah and then you know that led into les mills i was teaching you know all kinds of classes and as you do um a great industry to get into especially if you're living in new zealand they they just have such a supportive environment like yourself um the obsession with the calorie counting thing you know i think you know i went through that with the bodybuilding phase as well and competing internationally wow but getting getting out of calorie counting really only happened for me when I uh, got pregnant for the first time
1: that's interesting
0: yeah I just I'm actually having this moment now it's like mm. I don't think I've even spoken to anyone about it but I think it is for a lot of women you know we become we do become with obsessed with the calories and calories out thing as a way of justifying how much we can eat or how much exercise we need to do that day I think that's quite it's quite a big thing right and it's still it's still quite prevalent today But once I got pregnant, uh, something switched. It was like that idea of actually I've got a human in my body and everything that I do is about um, growing this human and actually not just from a physical perspective, meaning the nutrition that's going into my body, the way that I move, but the way that I need to role model my relationship with food and life and stress. And like, It actually was a a light bulb moment. And and then from that moment on, I don't even – I couldn't sometimes tell you the calorie value of food now and I would, I should probably know, but I just don't want to think about it.
1: (laughs) No, if you should know, do you know what I mean? Like I think prior to us being able to work out how many calories were in our food, we didn't have that knowledge. People ate well, they ate seasonal, they ate mostly balanced because that was just how we did life. Yeah. Whereas in today's age, I almost feel like people have felt like they have to have the knowledge to be healthy And sometimes going back to our intuition is actually the best way to be. If you can think about it from a really simplistic point of view, um, for most people, most of the time, eating a whole foods based diet that is rich in plant matter, has a good serving of protein, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, good quality carbohydrates, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and maybe some snacks, depending on how much activity you're doing. It kind of works for most of us. And you look at the kind of philosophy behind most dietary interventions that work, they are kind of based on that general basis for people. So you can make it as complicated as you want. If you've got a specific goal, of course, like bodybuilding, for example, I mean, there's some definite nitty gritty micro down to the wire that's they that have to happen down to weighing your food. Um, but for most general humans trying to achieve general health, it's, do we need to know? I don't know. Is it just extra, extra clutter for our minds to hold on to? And is it something that we should be enjoying instead of thinking about and calculating and trying to control?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Lisa. Hey, actually, while we're talking about diets, <laughs> um, so we've got a list of questions that we want to cover and um, things that I get asked by my audience to talk about as well, and I've got some of those into this um, interview today. But we'll get straight to the one on diets. And so what I'm hearing from women, and this is specific to women in midlife and going through the menopause transition, is um, there is a desperate uh, need, <laughs> want, to drop the weight that seems to accelerate during this phase of life. Now, um, if women don't know, you know, there is the hormone drop in estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, the three uh, key sex hormones, that obviously um, causes some level of insulin resistance, and therefore we seem to see accelerated weight gain despite the fact that they're still training relatively hard and a lot of discipline in the gym still eating really well a lot of them and then realizing that no matter what they're doing the weight's coming on and this is like heartbreaking for a lot of people Mm. I hear about it all the time so they they (laughs) in desperate measures (laughs) um start to really investigate some of the diets that are out there 30-day challenges keto um, low carb, uh, anything, anything that will help solve the problem that they've never had before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's your take on this?
1: Okay, so starting... It's a big with the,
0: question, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a
1: big one. Um, let's start with the physiology. Um yeah. Like you said, if we go through menopause, we lose estrogen and progesterone, testosterone a little bit, but not to a huge degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and estrogen, as much as people blame it for like storing fat around our hips and our belly is actually insulin sensitizing and it yeah. helps us to maintain muscle mass. Now, if you look at the research on body weight gain or body fat gain, the challenge that comes first is a loss of muscle tone and then a subsequent gain of weight. So it's not necessarily that we're over fat, it's that we're under muscled. So quite often for women, what they're doing that's working for them when they're younger isn't quite the right type of exercise for them to be doing as they're going through this transition, during which they really need to be promoting muscle protein synthesis and growth. And that is because you've lost the special helping hand of estrogen on your body's ability to maintain your metabolic health through maintaining your muscle mass. So I find women that do come to our clinical practice that have gained weight really rapidly is because they have been under-muscled and we're needing to shift their thinking around lifting weights in the gym, shift their thinking around um, how they recover from the gym as well, because the other tool you can utilize to stimulate muscle protein synthesis is dietary protein. And with there being a trend around low carb, vegan, Both of those things can promote, A, not enough calories going in, of which women always do better performance-wise and um, body composition-wise in a fed state. The other side of that is they often promote a lower protein intake or less opportunity for muscle protein synthesis in the system because they're lowering carbohydrates to aid protein going into the muscle or because they're lowering protein intake in general, of which as we get older, particularly as women, we need more. And I'm talking like some of the research says between 1.8 to 2.4 grams per the kg of body weight. Kg, yeah. yeah.
0: So that's what I promote in my course as well. And after doing the science and research that there is around women and sarcopenia during this particular, you know, uh, stage of life, it is it is quite mind blowing to realize that that's a significantly high level of protein than what we're used to eating. And so supplementation, right? It's like, it's going to be the way forward. So
1: yeah, yeah. And it's, I think it's rethinking the protein equation as well. Like if I, if I think about the average Western diet, you get up and you have your cereal for breakfast with a bit of milk and it, it's lower in protein. You have a sandwich for lunch with a scraping of ham in it, it's lower in protein. And then you might have one protein optimized meal for dinner. Mm. And I, like, if you really want to look after metabolic function, especially in this age group, it's rethinking protein at every single main meal and a minimum of 25 to 30 grams to really hit uh, a certain threshold of amino acid or a protein building block called leucine which triggers yeah. off muscle protein synthesis in the system so you need enough of that quality protein not just any protein to get your yes. levels up um so i think it's just reframing how we could be eating to optimize our well-being but once you try it people don't want to go back they're like oh my gosh my brain fog's gone and my recovery from exercise is great and my sleep is better and i'm Actually, not gaining weight anymore. I'm starting to feel different in my body. You're like, yeah, that's that's the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, bring it on, Lisa.
0: I'm so so excited that you've just said all of that because, um, just you know, from a personal perspective, I feel like I'm a work in progress. So every time I have an interview with someone, and they and they reinforce that the thing that I've started to do over maybe six or eight months, when you said no brain fog, none of this. That is 100% where I'm at right now. Like I change, I, I, I love muesli. When people have those little polls on Twitter, do you prefer sweet or or savory for breakfast? I used to be the sweet, but now I'm not. So if I'm going to get that protein, it's going to be a scrambled eggs. There's going to be some salmon and some avocado. And I know that that's, you know, maybe 20 grams of protein right there. And I would never have got that if I was eating my muesli, you know? Oh. So, and then there's the, the protein shake mid-morning. So I am kicking it nearly half my protein intake is happening before sort of two o'clock in the afternoon winning
1: (laughs) Yeah,
0: but it's not just that it's the thing that's changed how my body feels during menopause you know like yeah I just feel more energized I don't feel so hungry and snacky all the time because that is a that is a thing as well you know like a lot of us are working from home and the cupboard's calling (laughs) you know and so like how do you get on top of that i think it's the protein intake first thing in the morning get it done you know and it really really helps and i just love that you've pulled it all together with you know the protein synthesis giving us enough muscle so we can burn more fuel uh and not feel like we just we're losing a game here we're it's a losing game you know You can probably tell that I'm pretty pumped up about this conversation with Lisa, as everything we speak about validates my research and content that I've included in my Menopause Management online course. There is a full nutrition section dedicated to helping you manage your nutrition through menopause, including ideas on protein portions, when to eat, what to eat, and why. If you're listening to this episode right now, I'm giving a 15% discount off the course with the code LISAROCKS. I'll pop that link in the show notes so you can easily access it. Let's carry on.
1: Totally, like, so, yeah. on that snacking conversation as well, like, yeah. I think a lot of women feel like it's their fault that they are snacking, but know that your loss of estrogen does change your leptin, and it does change your hunger yeah. hormones, so yeah. you will naturally get more hungry, yeah. so the way to mitigate that hunger is to eat more of the macronutrients that are satiating and protein sits at the top of that chain. Um, So it's a really big game changer for people, I think, just focusing on that one thing. If you were to take one thing out of the conversation today, I would say that would be my first that I would put on the table.
0: Awesome. Hey, thanks, Lisa. That's brilliant. So therefore, I want to kind of segue into the keto diet because that's known for being high protein, right? But I've also learned a little bit about why carbohydrates are so important for women during menopause. It has a lot to do with brain health,
1: <laughs>
0: but also it has a lot to do with satiety so you can sleep through the night. Um, so there's a couple of you know advantages of keeping some carbohydrates in your diet. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because your expertise is really what we need to hear.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I think... The ketogenic diet, to, put, to give it its um, trumps, is an amazing diet um, for clinical intervention. Mm. So its literature started around looking at it as a dietary intervention for epilepsy in children where medication wasn't appropriate. And it does some cool things, There's some cool research emerging around brain cancer and brain health. But I think that's one context. It's not in the context of this particular demographic. When you look at women in particular, women like I said before, do best in a fed state, and we're actually very sensitive to carbohydrate deficit. I find for most clinic, um, most of my clinic clients, they will do best when I give them a, a minimum of around two grams per kg of body weight. It's generally what works most for people. If you're an athlete, you're pushing it hard, you're gonna need a little bit more, depending on A, the performance for the day, and B, the sport of choice. It changes what you need in your system. It's more strength-based, a little bit less, it's more endurance-based, a little bit more, and it can change the type of fuel that goes in as well, depending on whether you're performing on the day or whether it's just training day. Um, But for most women, having enough carbohydrate um, means better bowel function. It means better thyroid function, of which not enough carbohydrates in your system for women will decrease your thyroid function within a matter of four days.
0: Okay, well, that's super interesting to hear that. (laughs) Sorry for jumping in, because obviously one of the... um, the things that we need to check as we are diagnosing perimenopause or menopause is whether it's thyroid, under underactive thyroid or overactive thyroid. So that's interesting that you've said that about not having enough carbohydrates could be the reason that you might, you know, come up against this problem.
1: I don't know how many women I have encouraged to eat more food <laughs> and watch them get smaller as a side effect. You're like, well oh, it seems counterintuitive if you believe in calories and calories out. Yeah. But there is a point where under calories or not enough food going in specifically not enough protein and carbohydrate leads to what we call low energy availability low energy availability in women turns down our thyroid function which means that we don't have the hormones being produced from the butterfly gland in our throat that tells ourselves yo would you burn some energy please as a consequence that can lead to excess carbohydrate floating around in our body and that can lead to insulin resistance and make the equation work So I found with my entire experience of working in this industry, everything in health has a Goldilocks effect. where not too hot, not too cold. Somewhere in the middle is generally where you wanna be. And I think with carbohydrates, where the trend has come with low carb as we've been up this end in the too hot category with carbohydrates, eating more processed carbs and lots of them because that's kind of what we've been taught was healthy for us. Then we've swung and gone, swing, carbs are bad. I'm scared of bananas over here. But for women, we need to be somewhere in the middle where you know, those whole food carbs are actually really nourishing for us. And in particular, reference to menopausal symptoms, like not sleeping at nighttime. As you lose progesterone and estrogen, you lose your capacity to produce levels of melatonin. Melatonin is your nighttime sleeping hormone. And carbohydrates help to foster melatonin production.
0: Yeah.
1: So it. there's some real truth to it.
0: Yeah. Um, what about the effects of... Um... The keto diet on say i alluded to brain function and brain mm-hmm. fog so you know a lot of people will reach into these type of diets out of desperation and um but you know overall that there's some science coming out now with dr lisa musconi around um the effects of you know low calorie diets and low carbohydrate diets and accelerated brain dysfunction so <laughs> anything okay. that you would know about that as well
1: i actually haven't read any of that literature that's quite interesting
0: uh, Oh, I she's think in terms, terms of amazing.
1: Yeah, I I definitely will do some diving because that sounds really cool. Um, From my perspective, when it comes to carbohydrates, and I guess where our clinic focuses most of our work is largely around gastrointestinal function and the microbiome. Knowing that carbs contain things like soluble and insoluble fiber and prebiotics that feed the good bugs, those bugs then make postbiotics that are nourishing and nurturing for us. That's my largest sort of concern around ketosis, not maybe as an intervention short-term for somebody, but as a long-term plan. You're like, what does that do to your internal rainforest? We know with the human microbiome study that the human body is a symbiont. We live in synergy with microbes. Without microbes, you don't exist. (laughs) You need them inside you to live a healthy life it's not necessarily about what you put in your mouth that determines what nutrients you absorb and how well your immune system functions how nourished you are it's about what microbes are eating that and what are they making as a response to that for you
0: yeah
1: and a lot of those foods that are nourishing for our microbiome lo and behold are our carbohydrate based foods
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so I, I think there's some real truth there
0: um, You've actually touched on something I do want to talk about now, which is the microbiome and the effect on um, menopause hmm. to microbiome. I think that women are starting to figure out, but they don't have the details around um, that. They can't eat certain foods. Now certain things are making them feel, you know, not as vibrant, not as energized and, actually a lot of time i hear the words anxiety and depression thrown around mm-hmm. and we know that there is definitely a link towards a healthy microbiome and the way you feel about life in general do you want to talk about that a little bit more the effect of the hormones with your microbiome
1: yeah of course so i mean we often think estrogen and magistrate and we think reproduction that's all they're going to do for our system you're like well hang on a minute they're actually every there's receptors in your body everywhere for these hormones um, Progesterone plays a really key role in our body's ability to be calm. It's GABAergic. It helps us produce our inhibitory neurotransmitter, which makes us think,
0: ah, oh. uh,
1: yeah, feeling you get after a really good class of yoga, it's that, mm, so good, I'm so relaxed feeling. It plays a role in neurogenesis, so nerve growth. It plays a role in brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which plays a role in our brain health and development and cognitive function. It plays a really key role in suppressing our immune system and preventing it from going haywire. Mm. It plays a role in our bone density. It plays a role in our bowel function that it has so much more than just the opportunity for a baby to it. It's not funny. You can almost put these hormones in a category of being life saving and life promoting, not saying that when you lose them, you lose the life of them, but they are so much further reaching. And when we go through, I guess hormonal transitions bearing in mind that women experience more than one of these in their life you know puberty is the first if you have a baby or several babies they had one two or three depending on how many children you have and then perimenopause and menopause is the transition or the last one so every time we experience these fluctuations it changes our physiological response to these hormones gut function um as women will know when they're menstruating the second half of their cycle they're generally a bit more constipated women will most commonly report that they get constipated during pregnancy as well, the understanding of that to date is that higher levels of, of estrogen slows down bowel function and inhibits it from evacuating and creating a nice comfortable movement, which when your bowel is more blocked and not evacuated, it creates more opportunity for microbe fermentation, fermentation makes bubbles, bubbles makes gas, makes bloating, comfy coming, distended coming, I feel six months pregnant kind of look. So, for women that are going through perimenopause, where we lose progesterone first, and estrogen skyrockets and goes a little bit like this,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> all over the show,
0: it's wild. We can get
1: it's crazy. Yeah, it's a roller coaster and a half, Roll, or it's yeah. a roller coaster with one of those skyscraper drops. That's right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like the craziest roller coaster you've ever been on.
1: <laughs> totally. And that um, period where progesterone's lost first, and estrogen's still doing crazy skyrockets and drops is often when it can really inhibit our function. Now, when our bowel isn't moving properly, the microbiome alters in response to that. And that can change the mixture of bugs that live in our system. And we can end up with more microbes that make, um, I guess, more inflammation in our system. And we know that our microbes, one of the things that they produce from eating our food is serotonin. 95% of your serotonin is made in your gut, which helps with peristalsis, but it's also really important for feeling happy. I also know that um, clients in our clinic when they are blocked will feel more anxious so a bloated distended anxious human is generally a constipated blocked bloated human Um, purely because um, your second brain your gut um, talks directly to this brain now you would think what's that got to do with it but your gut has an enteric nervous system that is Second to your brain in terms of its number of nerve endings. So, you'd think it would be the spinal column because the spinal column is what connects the entire system together, but it's actually your gut. Your gut is more sensitive to the environment changes internally than any other part of your body. So, when you're feeling bloated, distended, and full, that can really aggravate this gut, which aggravates this gut and make us feel really hypervigilant and anxious. As a consequence as well, it also offers our immune system function and for some people that can lead to an increased production of certain um, anxiety provoking or neuro stimulatory, um, chemicals like histamine. So if you think yeah. itchy, hot, inflamed, yeah. rashy, aggravated, like a little kid with eczema, really can't sleep most of the time because they're hot and agitated by histamine. The body does this as a protective mechanism. If you think about it, you would maybe sit on a log and that log had something on it that wasn't good for you to be nearby. It makes sense for your body to go, oh, I should get off the log mm. and move and get away from the histamine producing thing or the immune provoking thing. So block bowels can also add to that equation as well. Yeah. The other side of the fence is when you lose estrogen and progesterone, you lose their benefits on your nervous system and that can lead to Stress bowels, which a lot of stress bowels result in diarrhea, um, which can change how women's bowels are functioning, particularly if they're prone to more of a nervous tummy where their bowel will turn more of a liquid type presentation under the state of stress. So bowels can really change with hormonal shifts. And it's it's not to say that, oh my God, I'll put the hormones back in to fix it, but it's also to think, well, what's the underlying drivers behind this? Do I need more good bugs to help my bowels move Do I need more support for breaking down my food, i.e. something to help me have better levels of stomach acid, good release from my gallbladder, good pancreatic function. So my enzymes can be like the Pac-Man on the personal ad and come along and chomp, 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 chomp before the microbes get to it. So they only get what they need to get and then my body can get it through the system, nicely digested and easy to move out of the body. Or is it my nervous system that needs help and support? Am I naturally a stressed human and I've been riding the wave with the support of estrogen and progesterone? Then I'll go on and my body's like, that extra bit of support that was keeping us above water, <laughs> we're now drowning. <laughs> ah! In yeah, which case, we're
0: done. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. In which case, it's like, do we look at how do we support the nervous system? What dietary and lifestyle interventions can we bring in that deload your body of stress? Um, usually for people it's bringing in things like meditation, some sort of mindfulness, getting them to understand that being all go all do leaves you all in a state of fight and flight, zero opportunity for rest, digest and repair, which the woman in particular as nurturers and carers is a hard thing to evaluate and to put into gear because we often think we're being selfish by doing it. When we've lived a life where everyone around us is more important than we are because we're the mum, we're the carer, we're the nurturer Mm -hmm. but in fact it's actually the thing that you need to do to be able to carry on nurturing yourself and others around you so it's menopause is a good life teacher I think people that haven't learned that downtime is important and your own sort of sense of yin and calm is also really important and sometimes looking after yourself is selfless not selfless
0: yeah no I absolutely love what you have just said there and I think it and you said that menopause is a time of reflection I think because it does make you stop I mean some of the symptoms and the effects on your body and mind are so compelling and so in your face that you actually do have to stop and address it because it starts to affect your relationships your performance at work um, you know how you feel physically and mentally so I just absolutely love that. You you have to stop. You have to look Mm. at what stress, what stresses are in your life and address them. You know, whether it's journaling, yoga, meditation, breathing, like dancing, dancing. (laughs) Have you seen my TikTok?
1: (laughs) No, but I will.
0: Okay. We should do one of those ones where you, you know, you, you yeah. okay we'll do that next time um yeah find the thing that that lights you up think about when you were when you were young and and think about the thing that used to just it was easy for you and you just loved it and get back to it on some level you know maybe not acrobatics but oh no you're doing that aren't you lisa
1: <laughs> finding my inner gymnast it's yeah. been plus it's been fun
0: Super cool. Yeah. And I think that that really, you know, sort of helps you realize that, you know, you've got all this amazing life ahead of you, but you've got to take care of now if you're going to enjoy the rest of it. So um, because you're an expert in your field when it comes to nutrition, can you give us some quick hacks to uh, what can we do to improve our nutrition during menopause? What are some of the top tips that you've got for us?
1: Cool. Big things would be like I mentioned before protein first thing and foremost having enough of that breakfast lunch and dinner post-training protein really important as well I remember as a PT early days um, there was a paper that came out to say that the post-workout window of 30 minutes was really important for everybody and then like four years later they're like nah just kidding you can have protein wherever you want yeah study one included women. study two did not
0: Correct. emphasize
1: my point yeah. So, women the post workout protein window is really important, and usually we tend to send heat outwards when we train rather than inwards like men do. So, getting hungry is quite hard. So, often liquid protein refueling is really helpful there. Usually thirty to forty grams, and closer to the forty gram mark. Nick protein is what women needs to really optimize recovery, but also making sure they're getting enough downtime in between sessions so that morning and afternoon training doesn't really work in this category either. Great. So that's part one: mm-hmm. protein and protein quality. Part two, I would say for women, get good um, support for your microbiome and that comes in the form of quality carbohydrates, you don't have to go none, you don't have to go way too many there's a balance somewhere in the middle and it's usually like I said somewhere around the kind of like two grams per kg of body weight range for most people if they're moving. Um, so that there and see how much that helps with your cognitive health and balance if you're worried about it and a little bit nervous on it, start with the whole food sources. Start with the bananas, the kumaras, the potatoes, the the things that come from nature because nature never gets wrong in terms of adding extra vitamins, minerals, fibers and things that are good for your good bugs. I would also say add in your greens. I tend to encourage my clients to get in up to nine cups of vegetables and fruit per day. So two fruit stops and then the rest of it being your veggies because that's the stuff that feeds our microbiome and gives us the dietary fiber we need to keep our bowel functioning well. The next thing I'm going to say is probably a little bit sad for people to hear, but I'm going to say get rid of the alcohol as much as you can. Um, alcohol has a negative impact on our microbiome. It doesn't serve women during menopause. It actually makes hot flushes worse. It hinders REM sleep, which means you don't get the cognitive benefit of sleep on your memory. So if anything that you can look at, minimizing or pulling out, that's definitely one to do. And then caffeine's another one that doesn't really seem to serve women during this transition either. So that includes your coffee, but also things like your tea, which contain, like your black teas that contain coffee as well, they can be a real hindrance for sleep. And sleep is a major player in the game of keeping your bowel functioning, but also keeping your insulin sensitization. They have shown that poor sleep really rapidly impacts our insulin uh, capacity or ability to cope with higher blood sugars. So that would be the key things there around sleep as well. And then I would say definitely make sure you're eating enough because not eating enough is stressful for the human system. And if you're going through a phase of your life where your stress um, reactivity gets compromised because of the loss of estrogen and progesterone, it's kind of the thing you need to double down on.
0: Yeah. Hey, that's awesome, Lisa. Hey, I really appreciate your time today. And nice. you have given so many nuggets of gold for um for women during menopause. Uh, for health in general, but I think um, you know there because as we're accelerating the conversation around menopause, which I don't know whether I've gone into a rabbit hole and that's all I see in here now. But um, you know, I do I, know. I do see a lot of the questions around. Oh, should I be eating this? Should I not be eating this? Should I try this diet and that? And I just absolutely love that you have um, in like thirty minutes given us so much information. And um, I'm excited about the future for anyone that hears this episode because uh, it's super helpful. So
1: thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share. It's a real, real pleasure. really is.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did catching up with my guest. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and feel free to rate and review too. For the book, online course, blog, workshops, and coach calls, subscribe to www.sexyageing.com. That's ageing with an E.